you all for coming. Um, I assume you're out there. I hear some breathing, and I see the light in some of your eyes, I think. Or maybe <laughs> you could be raccoons, though. I can see nothing else. Um, I am so pleased to be here this afternoon and so pleased to be sitting here with three extraordinary female writers. Um, you know, I never used to like it when people would say, uh, call me a female writer. I'm like, I'm not a female writer, I'm an American writer. But more and more I lean into that, lean into being called a female writer um, because well, we can talk about that. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it, it feels, well, we'll talk more about this, but almost political at this moment in time. Um, here at my end here is uh, Jennifer Egan. Oh, and I'm gonna read greatly abbreviated bios so that you all get a chance to ask questions because I'm assuming you wanna do that. So Jennifer Egan on the end is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of several novels and a short story collection as well as a journalist. She is currently the president of PEN America and the artist in residence at the University of Pennsylvania. Next to her, we have Alif Shafak. Shafak. Uh, she is the award-winning author of 16 books, including the memoir Black Milk, which looks at postpartum depression, which is actually one of the bravest and most uh, uh, searing accounts I've read of postpartum depression. And most recently, the novel, The Three Daughters of Eve. Alif, who is part British and part Turkish, is the most widely read female novelist in Turkey. I know. She is also a political commentator, and if you have not watched her TED Talk, you really must. Inez Pedrosa here. Uh, has also won several awards for her acclaimed journalism and literary work. She has written 18 books, was the director of the Casa Fernanda Pessoa Publishing House, and is currently a columnist for Seoul, Lisbon's weekly newspaper. Although her novel, In Her Hands, which we'll be discussing today, was written 20 years ago, it has taken us that long to get it translated into English, and we're thrilled uh, that that happened. All of these novels look at the ways that women subvert the conventions of the world that they're living in, all conventions dictated by men. These are political novels in that the personal is always political and particularly so when the writer is neither male nor white. None of these women that we're reading about nor none of these women here fit easily into the world perhaps that they were born into. What I'd like to do is to start with each one of our panelists reading a little bit of the book that they are going to be, um, that we're going to be discussing, uh, and then we will get into it. Okay, Jenny, can we start with you? Sure. I'm just going to read right from the beginning, so my female protagonist at this point is a child. Uh, the first part is called The Shore. They'd driven all the way to Mr. Stiles' house before Anna realized that her father was nervous. First, the ride had distracted her, sailing along Ocean Parkway as if they were headed for Coney Island, although it was four days past Christmas and impossibly cold for the beach. Then the house itself, a palace of golden brick, three stories high, windows all the way around, a rowdy flapping of green and yellow striped awnings. It was the last house on the street, which dead-ended at the sea. Her father eased the Model J against the curb and turned off the motor. Toots, he said, don't squint at Mr. Stiles' house. 
Of course I won't squint at his house. You're doing it now. No, she said, I'm making my eyes narrow. <laughs> That's squinting, he said. You've just defined it. Not for me. He turned to her sharply. Don't squint. That was when she knew. She heard him swallow dryly and felt a chirp of worry in her stomach. She was not used to seeing her father nervous. Distracted, yes. Preoccupied, certainly. Why doesn't Mr. Stiles like squinting? She asked. No one does. You never told me that before. Would you like to go home? No, thank you. I can take you home. If I squint, if you give me the headache I'm starting to get. If you take me home, Anna said, you'll be awfully late. She thought he might slap her. He'd done it once after she'd let fly a string of curses she'd heard on the docks, his hand finding her cheek invisibly as a whip. The specter of that slap still haunted Anna with the odd effect of heightening her boldness in defiance of it. Her father rubbed the middle of his forehead, then looked back at her. His nerves were gone. She had cured them. Anna, he said, you know what I need you to do. Of course. Be your charming self with Mr. Stiles' children while I speak with Mr. Stiles. I knew that, Papa. Of course you did. She left the Model J with eyes wide and watering in the sun. It had been their own automobile until after the stock market crash. Now it belonged to the union, which lent it back for her father to do union business. Anna liked to go with him when she wasn't in school, to racetracks, communion breakfasts, and church events, office buildings where elevators lofted them to high floors, occasionally even a restaurant, but never before to a private home like this. Wonderful. What you need to know is when Anna grows up, she becomes even more headstrong um, and becomes the first civilian Navy diver, female civilian Navy diver, which is quite extraordinary. And if you haven't read Manhattan Beach, if you um, are uh, at all interested, like I am, in the underworld, the seedy underworld and the life uh, on the docks in the 30s and 40s, you will want to take it home with you. All right, Elif, would you read for us, please? Yes, please? And I guess I should set you up. Let me set you up. Um, the daring trio of female characters here in um, The Daughters of Eve are young Muslim women who have gone to Oxford, uh, who are students, and in the beginning, it appears that they have uh, perhaps more in common that they do and their, the way their lives dovetail and come apart and the things that they discuss, um, feminism, sexuality, politics, uh, is really unforgettable. Thank you so much, thank you. And I really think right now, um, particularly so many vital issues are being debated by women. Um, they ask the most important questions about identity, belonging, sexuality, faith. But the problem is most of these conversations are being held in the private space. We need to bring them into the public space. And for me, I just want to tell you a little bit about the novel before reading. Uh, that was very important to hear the diversity of voices coming 
from this background. There are three young women in this book. They all attend Oxford University. They all come from Muslim backgrounds, but their relationship to their identity is completely different. So we have Shirin, who is British-Iranian. She's the child of exiled parents who had to flee. And she's very critical, who had to run away um, from fundamentalism. And so she's very critical of all religions, but in particular of Islam, because of the lack of gender equality in many Muslim countries. And there's Mona, who is an American, Egyptian-American. She's a practicing Muslim, and she complains about Islamophobia because she experiences this a lot. And there's Piri, whom I will be reading about, and she has lots of questions about everything and anything. And together, they jokingly call themselves the sinner, the believer, and the confused. <laughs> so this is, the, this is the story of the confused one. Mostly, I focus on her journey. And her own parents are very polarized, just like my motherland, Turkey, is. Her father is a Democrat, and like many Democrats in Turkey, he's quite depressed. <laughs> her parents were as incompatible as tavern and mosque. The frowns that descended on their brows, the stiffness that infused their voices, identified them not as a couple in love, but as opponents in a game of chess. On the faded board of their marriage, they each pushed forward, strategizing the next moves, capturing castles, elephants, and viziers, aiming to deliver the ultimate defeat. Each side saw the other as the tyrant in the family, the intolerable one, and longed to say, someday, checkmate, shahmanad, the sovereign is helpless. Their marriage had been so deeply woven with mutual resentment that they no longer needed a reason to feel wronged and frustrated. Even at that young age, Peri sensed that love was not, and probably never had been, the reason why her parents were together. In the evenings, she watched her father slumped at the table with plates of mezes distributed around a bottle of raka, stuffed grape leaves, mashed chickpeas, grilled red peppers, artichokes in olive oil. He would eat slowly, sampling each dish like a fastidious connoisseur, even though the food was no more than a necessity so as not to drink on an empty stomach. I don't gamble, I don't steal, I don't accept bribes, I don't smoke, and I don't go around chasing women. Surely Allah will spare his old creation this much misdeed. Her father was fond of saying. Ordinarily, he would have a friend or two join him for these lengthy suppers. They would rattle on about politics and politicians, depressed about the state of things. Like the majority of the people in this land, they talked most about the things they liked least. <laughs> Travel the world, you will see. Everyone drinks differently, her father would say. He himself had moved around a fair amount in his youth as a ship's engineer. In a democracy, when a man gets drunk, he cries, what happened to my sweetheart? Where there's no democracy, when a man gets drunk, he cries, what happened to my sweet country? Soon, words would melt into melodies and they would be singing. Bouncy Balkan tunes at first, revolutionary Black Sea songs next, and gradually, inevitably, Anatolian ballads of heartbreak and love. Turkish, Kurdish, Greek, 
Armenian, Ladino lyrics would mix in the air by coiling wisps of smoke. Sitting by herself in a corner, a heaviness of heart would come over Piri. She often wondered what it was that made her father so sad. She imagined sorrow sticking to him like a fine layer of black tar under the sole of his shoe. She could neither find a way to lift his spirits nor stop trying, for she was, as everyone in the family would testify, her father's daughter. Wonderful, wonderful. And now, Inez, um, what were you, I hope, who, which, which who are you going to read from? From, from Camilla's Great. Okay. Album. <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, in, in, in your hand spans three generations of women, uh, Portuguese, living in, uh, beginning in 1930s under the rule of Salazar, moving uh, to the 60s, counterculture, spend some time in Mozambique to the 90s where you're going to pick up uh, with, the, with, the, with the granddaughter. I'm very excited. No, no. Well, actually, oh, Camila, Camila. daughter. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. It's the '60s one, but uh, in 1994, when she she made a self-portrait and thinks about her life. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank Pan America for being here. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but yesterday in another session, there came this woman saying, "It's the first time this." wonderful festival as a Portuguese writer. I don't know if it's true, but if... Oh, that's horrifying if it's if true. If it's true, I'm... I'm sure it's not Overwhelmed. <laughs> so, well, we're happy to have you. Uh, very, very happy. Anyway, uh, I would like to thank and, and to say that the, the English translation is from Andrea Rosenberg, a very, a very good translator. My accent, on the other hand, is terrible because... So you, you must... <laughs> Really do an effort. Uh, it's, it's called uh, the chapter Self-Portrait, and it's, uh, the book is in three parts. Uh, and, and the second one is by this uh, photographer, Camilla, and she writes like, like if we have the, the, the photographs she takes, and she, she does a sort of uh, album uh, with texts on the photographs. Now it's the self-portrait she, she, she takes of herself in March 1994. I really like this woman who's suddenly gazing out at me, camera in hand. She's me. I'm 52 years old. It's in the curvature of the fingers that the passage of time first becomes apparent. When I was studying photography, the professor would prod the bones in my, hand, in my hands until he felt them pop, telling me my fingers were too stiff to accommodate the fluidity of the world. Relax, let go, accept. To capture a moment's swift passage, we must do away with abruptness entirely. Let ourselves be carried away on the inner slowness of speed. As we age, our fingers grow emaciated and sinuous. Closer to time, age spots flow over the skin of my hands, gradually spreading. When people mistreat me, I stare at those brown islands that are leading me to the land of my dead. 
no one can do, can do me harm anymore. A few more years, and maybe they won't even be able to leave a mark. This is my only self-portrait. I decided to take it when I came home after the opening of my show on Mozambique. I had to wait 30 years to hang that show, 30 years till I could find the perfect space and the gentle atmosphere those images, those images required. I also sought the heavy cloak of years would shield me from the carbon dioxide of visibility. But the people who came up to congratulate me said, these photos are just fireworks with nothing to back them up. They said, it's evident you weren't really at ease with the camera. They said, as a document, they're interesting photos. I asked my first photo editor to introduce the show. I thought he was the only one who could explain the power, the suffering, and the quality of those photos. It's in my beginnings from the inside, discussed angles and f-spots with me. When I called him Pygmalion, he'd laugh and shake his head. I was merely the humble discoverer of a great talent. 30 years later, at my first major public show, my mentor didn't talk about talent. Well, strictly speaking, it was my talent he didn't mention. Instead, he gave a long animated speech about the genius of Werner Bischoff, who'd photographed famine victims in India in the 50s. In the last two lines of his speech, he referred to the documentary vitality of my photos, which would be inducted into the same tradition of aesthetic and civic concerns as Bischoff. And that was it. The attendees applauded the fire and the erudition of his speech, and two minutes later, they were whispering to each other. He barely talked about Camilla's photos. That says something. Wonderful. Wonderful. I think we can all agree that the, the personal is political. And I think as women writers, every time uh, we sit down to work, we are in some way fixing for a fight. Uh, beyond the battles that all writers have with language and imagination, um, there is this truth. When a woman uh, pulls out her pen, she is pulling out a sword. She is challenging the status quo by carving out a place for herself and for her stories. Thinking about the three of you here today, these characters are very strong women and they are defying societal expectations. I'm wondering, when we think about characters, when people read these books, there are characters that inspire us. Uh, there are female characters that inspire us, as, as well as male characters. But I'm curious, did you ever, as a young person, pick up a book and immediately uh, connect to a female character? Did you feel inspired? Did you feel led? Um, did those people speak to your imagination? Because it's certainly something that you are doing. You are giving us those women. But how did you get to this place? Well, I, I mean, I'd, I would not say I was the most um, precocious reader as a kid. 
uh, in that I wasn't reading, you know, sort of beyond my age level, let's say. But honestly, I adored Nancy Drew. I mean, she could do, yes. you know, it was quite amazing. She could do everything perfectly. Yeah. You know, it's something to aspire to. I mean, whatever it was, golf, tennis, uh, <laughs> shooting. I mean, she was just incredible. Um, she didn't really have a lot of sort of character depth, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that mattered to me. So I, that, I loved Nancy Drew, um, and I loved that I knew exactly what I was going to get from her, which was perfection and results. Um, and I also loved the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. Yes. I mean, those were, I felt like I sort of lived in that world, and um, those, those, all of that feels like part of my kind of literary DNA, such as it is. No, absolutely. And when you go back, I don't know if, if you have read those books. It's amazing what a beautiful prose stylist she was. Just yeah. a beautiful, no, those beautiful are be Yeah, reading them to my kids, I was reminded of that. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Alif? I think because of the way I grew up, it's been a bit of a mixture, my reading lists. But I was a reader from an early age onwards because I was a very lonely child. Mm -hmm. So books were my, my friends in that, in that sense. Uh, like probably many girls coming from similar backgrounds, for me to 1001 Nights was very important because Shehrazad was the storyteller. And to see her inventing stories every night and empowering other women, helping them to survive, and herself surviving, that, that was remarkable. Uh, over the years, of course, there many other books. One, 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 one book that stayed very vividly with me was The Little, Little Women and Joe, the writer in the book. Um, <laughs> but I think, of course, as, as I got older, uh, I remember very vividly the first time I read Orlando. And even though the character there is not a woman to begin with, but changes the gender, that was incredibly eye-opening. Yes. And, and you know, that you can go beyond cultures, beyond boundaries, even beyond gender boundaries. You can do that in a novel, and that left a huge impact on me. And I think Wolf is one of those writers that maybe also gives you permission to try something like that, you know, and to, to play. That kind of freedom, yeah. yeah You're allowed is, to do that. Yeah, yeah which is pretty extraordinary. How about you? Well, Elif just stole my... my, <laughs> my I knew she but was going to do it, didn't Yeah. She? <laughs> uh, women do that all the time. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true, too. Uh, but my first heroine uh, um, uh, uh, was Joe by Little Women, and then Orlando by Virginia Woolf. Wow. And the thing about Orlando is the phrase where, where Virginia Woolf says, the changing of sex, something like this. Yeah. I'm, I'm quoting by heart. The changing of sex would would change his uh, is her, her destiny, but not his identity. Yeah. And I think that the that was very strong to me. I read it quite uh, quite as a young uh, girl yet. And there is another book very important for me, and I don't think uh, anybody would remember it here because it's a Portuguese book by three women. Three women there were very famous in the 70s because they did a book called New Portuguese Letters, inspired on the Portuguese letters by a nun, Mariana Alcufurad, the passionate letters of the 17th century that run the world, and they're supposedly wrote by a nun in, an in a sexual, sexual as passion ecstasy. And they took this idea to do new Portuguese letters on the way 
women were treated in society in the 70s. That was in dictatorship time in Portugal. They were arrested, they were uh, going to arrest first and then going to court by uh, pornography and, and immorality. And then revolution came and they were freed from this uh, uh, court thing. But the book is like, Maybe you have heard about Fernando Pessoa, Book of Disquiets. It's yes. quite a book of disquiets written by three women. In, uh, in uh, Nobody knows which chapter is from whom. The, it has poetry, uh, tales, stories, and essays. And it's fragmentary and magnificent. And it was uh, also magnificent. It is magnificent on, the con on, the, on what it says and the way it plays with language. Mm -hmm. So it was my measures. It was like I read it uh, on hiding because it was in the, in the drawing drawer of my father's mm -hmm. being a forbidden book. So I would oh. go to the bathroom and read it. I couldn't understand half of it. I still think, thought that babies would come from uh, Paris in the, with the birds, you know. And then suddenly I understood how babies were made, how, how women were mistreated, how everything went right. in the world, and how language was wonderful. Wow. Yeah, that was. Those mysterious <laughs> secret books in my father's yeah. room were not nearly that. Uh, <laughs> they, were also, they were also eye opening and terrifying, but a little <laughs> bit different than that. Um, but to forbid books, but, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, it's no, not such a bad thing sometimes. Yeah. No, I, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. Uh, looking at, looking at your, your heroines here, um, did the books start with an idea? Did they start uh, with a place? Did they start with the historical time? Or did they start with the character? Where did they come from? Where did these, where did these women come from? Jenny, do you want to start? Because you usually write about, or a lot of your stories have been um, about men. I love to write from a male point of view, partly because I really dislike writing about myself. I sort of go dead. And so <laughs> for me, the, the whole motive for writing is a kind of escape and a sort of transcendence out of my own life. So writing from a male point of view is a kind of an easy way to establish that it's not me right from the start. And as a result, a number of my books have sort of skewed toward the male. And that was really troubling me. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm a feminist, and I'm, I'm amazed by women. I want to write a book that includes some sort of um, confrontation with feminine strength and how it moves through the world. So I sort of had that as a, as a vague idea. But then what I really started with was just a time and a place, which is always how it works with me. And in, in this case, it was New York during World War II. Um, and so I did a lot of research while I was working on other books and, and got some sort of vague ideas of who the characters might be. And I realized pretty quickly that this would be a very good era in which to deal with my interest in watching female strength in the world because it was a strange moment for women. I mean, the, the mores governing their sexual behavior were not very different from the way they had been 100 years earlier, and yet their, the, their, the reality of their lives didn't really line up with that. And certainly during the war, when they were begged to take the jo industrial jobs that men had vacated to go fight, 
they were suddenly thrust into these very different um, sorts of workplaces and, and modes of life. So it was a really dynamic, kind of fascinating, liminal time for women. So, But the way I came up with Anna, really, and one reason I wanted to read that first scene was I just sat down and started writing, which is kind of how I always do it with my first drafts. And the first thing I thought is, oh my god, it's a kid. I'm dealing with the 30s. I haven't even really started researching the Depression yet. but in a way, that scene happened very spontaneously, and it's, it told me a lot of what I needed to know about her right up front. You know, her boldness, her defiance, her, um, the fact that she kind of chafes against rules instead of following them, which is more of the way I always was. So she immediately seemed very different from me, and that was very important. Um, and so I just kind of followed those traits and followed her into her future along with two other important characters who, who are male, her father and then a sort of uh, gangster figure who comes into both of their lives. How about you, Alif? I think it's very similar in the sense that I don't see fiction write, writing fiction as an autobiographical journey necessarily. Actually, it's the opposite that excites me, not being myself just the freedom of becoming someone else and then someone else and that endless transcendental journey. That's why I have an issue with this teaching that we keep spreading around, you know, write what you know. To me, it sounds so so limited. In particular for this book, I think with each and every book, it's different. You're drawn to a small idea. It starts with something very small, sometimes an image. But the curiosity, if it excites me, if I'm curious about that that little idea, I just follow it with all my passion. And I do a lot of research. In this case, it was the same thing. These three young women, it's possible to think of them, of course, as separate individuals. And then the question is, despite their differences, can they still be friends? Can they, can they be sisters? Because to me, that's very important to bridge those gaps. But at the same time, maybe you can even imagine them as different seasons that one person goes mm. through. You know, there are moments in our lives when we are the sinner, and then we are the believer, and we are the confused. So it's possible to see that uh, as one person's journey as well. That said, sometimes people ask me which character is closer to you because they always think women writers must be All right. you know somewhere there but I think I, I am more drawn to you know hiding behind male characters yes to me that's that's more fascinating but if I may add this in particular about this book um, everything that I observed throughout the year 2015 in Turkey somehow seeped into this mm-hmm. novel the things I observed the things I heard and I saw myself and so much so that the entire book takes place across one lengthy supper with starters, main course, and the dessert. Um, and I have been at such dinner tables in Turkey. The reason why I'm mentioning, this is the year when there were so many terror attacks in Turkey. And every day, there would be these very mundane conversations, and then somebody would check their Twitter feed. So one moment, people would be talking about each other's, you know, clothes and diets and detox and then the next moment they will be talking about death you know the possibility of death just outside on the street and that's schizophrenia you know the shift from one mood to the other all of that stayed with me and i think at some point i wanted to call the book the last supper of the turkish bourgeoisie oh that's (laughs) wonderful (laughs) but my editor said that wasn't the best idea so (laughs) i gave up but 
It's a good All name for the film. I, I film did, adaptation. I did witness and yeah, observe. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, um, one thing that's curious is that women are always asked. That's why we so frequently, I think, have to ex feel we have to explain that we are not our characters. Nobody asks Philip Roth if he is the one. But uh, of course he is. Knows yes. <laughs> But nobody cares. No. Uh, uh, I mean, the, I, I remember um, um, another Portuguese writer once wrote, uh, recently wrote a book that starts with uh, a woman that was raped. And she went to a TV show and they asked immediately, have you been raped? <laughs> I, I never saw these kind of questions done to, to men. And that's, that's odd. Uh, also, when I wrote a book only with male figures, because I, we, I think a writer is like Orlando, is yeah. everything. Uh, they asked me, how did you dare? Uh, in, in nice ways, but how did you dare to, to get to men? Well, I, I know lots of men, and I, I happen <laughs> to like men. And m Flaubert could say, uh, Madame Bovary, c'est moi, and nobody, no, and, uh, and everybody's, although, I, I think that Madame Bovary has suffered for an excess of tedium. No real <laughs> woman is so tedious because no. we always have anything else in our minds, I think. But it's my opinion. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we have more going on, you know. Too always. much to do. We can suffer. We can die like Anna Karenina because we want to be free and we cannot. Right. But it's not out of tedium. It's out of the opposite of right. tedium. Right. Anyway, right. Right. Uh, in this book, uh, it's three generation of women, and it started <coughs> in that case because it changes all the time, as they were saying. In that case, it started because a friend of mine told me she had an aunt that married to a man in the 30s, and the, and and she and he was an homosexual. She's, he told her on the day of the wedding, and then they lived together with his lover, and she kept the secret all her life. And when she told the family, because he died and the lover was living with her, and she wanted to marry with the lover, so people wouldn't speak about her right. being... Uh, they didn't let her marry because of the property dividing, and she went mad, lonely and mad. And she told me like the, this story at a lunch. I never heard about. I, I never knew the woman, but I had uh, dreams with that woman, pitying her, and and she was telling me I was not a, a victim. You should not look at me at, as a victim. And I started by reading her story, writing her story. And then her story led to the story of the second woman and the, the third woman who were uh, uh, the generations to go because she adopted in the book, that's the book already. She adopted the daughter of her, lover, her husband's lover uh, because her husband's lover had an affair with a woman in, uh, in the World War II, too, uh, a Jewish woman is escaped for Lisbon. And then, uh, and that's Camilla, who goes to be a photographer. And then Camilla has a, a daughter with a, a Mozambican revolutionary in, during the colonial, the Portuguese colonial war. We would be a, an architect, half black woman in Portugal. So what I ended up doing without thinking about it first was the history of women in Portugal and in the world, 
in the world, I mean, sort of the evolution in, uh, in certain parts of the world <laughs> of rights or, or for women, and also the start, the, the beginning of uh, the invention of intimacy. That's why the book is called In Your Hands and it's about belonging. And now for the first time in history, women and men, and women and women also, and men and men, get to choose their intimacy and live together as couples because it, it's really new in history. People lived in large productivity or large sovereignty uh, realms and in big families or, or in big, uh, in, in, other, uh, in other ways, not this couple invention, either in friendship or in, in love, that we now uh, built intimacy is one of the discoveries of the 20th century. That's, sure. that's it. Sure. I think that a writer should be able to write about whatever the fuck they want to write about <laughs> from whatever point of view they want, want to do that. They certainly don't have to have lived it. I think all that matters is they, uh, they really inhabit that character as a human being, uh, which I think is, is the most important thing. Do you, though, feel as, um, as women writers, do you feel in any way um, obligated to write about women or to write about women in a certain way? I'm only asking because I had a writing teacher once who told me that I had a moral obligation to create, to write stories about young women that would serve as blueprints for future generations. Do you ever feel like that you are obliged, whether it is to write about, uh, you know, uh, politics or, or a certain kind of relationship? Do you feel any pressure in that way? Um, I guess I did a little bit because I, you know, I was thinking that that things had that it, it, because it was such a struggle to even, for example, with a visit from the Goon Squad, um, it was only at the very end that I was able to get it to 50-50 male and female. It was it was tipping toward the male until I added a, a story at at the end that was from a female point of view. But I guess my basic approach with fiction is that I really trust in a kind of organic process. So I'm very wary of, of anything that I should be doing. Um, because I feel like there's, it, 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 things can very quickly become sort of dutiful and didactic, which I think is really the enemy of great storytelling. And I dislike encountering that as a reader. Um, I, I just feel like the chief job of, of the fiction I'm trying to write is honestly just to transport people in the way that I want to be transported as a reader. And I feel like my best bet at pulling that off is just following my, my gut, really, into, into material that feels alive and exciting. So I try to not think too much beyond that. Um, maybe I should start, though. <laughs> Well, th there are all kinds of expectations coming from different different sides. One expectation is, of course, for women writers to write about strong female characters. But what exactly that means, nobody knows. <laughs> uh, maybe another expectation, which is a bit more subtle in the publishing world, which affects me because I think, particularly for women writers who come from outside the Western world, there's this expectation that you should write realistic stories. 
that you should inform people about what life mm. is like in your own country. I mean, one example that I uh, share a lot is we don't expect an Afghan woman writer to write science fiction, for instance, or avant-garde experimental fiction. We want her to tell us how life is for Afghan women in her own country. So that, that pisses me off a lot, that's that kind of identity politics. But then there's another expectation that I experience from this side. Sometimes Turkish readers get upset at me. They say, you know, why are you representing us in a, in showing us in a bad way? You know, why don't you show us in a, in a, as, in a more positive light? And that too can be a lot of pressure on a, on a writer's shoulders, especially if you come from a wounded democracy. And I think it's better not to think about any of that and just to stay in your own story um, try to sh shut out the so-called real world and, and, and stay in that imaginary world as long as you can. Just like you, I don't like it when writers try to teach something or preach something. I don't think that's our job and I find it very off-putting. But I think it is our job to ask questions. I don't know the answers myself. I want to discover the answers together. And I do know that every reader's answer is going to be different and unique, just like our fingerprints. But I believe it is my job as a writer to ask difficult questions about difficult issues. So of course, as storytellers, we are drawn to stories, but I think we're equally drawn to silences, the things we cannot talk about, including taboos, political taboos, cultural taboos, sexual taboos, just to be able to say, why is it like that? You know, Can we please take a closer look at this? So I like asking all those questions uh, throughout my work, and perhaps in that sense, my novels are maybe novels of ideas too, yes. but then always leave the answers to the reader. And I like that diversity and openness. Yeah, well, it invites a kind of collaboration yeah. that is always, um, that always uh, expands the experience. I think really the, the moral of the story is to be, the enlightenment of certain aspect of reality or, or, or of irreality of something that happens in people's minds or lives that uh, needed to be shown or hadn't been yet uh, lightened uh, in a way. So I think that's why we, we, we write, yes. And also, of course, women always were expected much more than men in moral uh, issues, I, I, I guess. Uh, although men also, I think the, the, the feminism issue must liberate men. Uh, Elif was, was speaking about the public space and, uh, in, the, in the beginning and very well. But men are now uh, um, demanding the aspects of the private space, and they should. That's uh, feminism is is a happiness for everybody in, in right. that way, you know. And and they have been expected to to be uh, the soldiers all the time, which I think it's horrible. I mean, her, her protagonist wanted to be a soldier, and she uh, of Manhattan bit, and she acquired the right of being a soldier. She couldn't, but they could not not being, which is terrible too. But women are always, I think we all, at least I, passed through a phase of uh, not, n we, I mean, often conscious of not wanting to uh, um, disappoint people, disappoint expectations, the family mm. uh, expectations. I remember my first book, I wouldn't, 
uh, it, it dealt with the young people and I wouldn't add, uh, uh, wanted to use bad words, I mean, uh, do I, uh, 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 swear, swear, yeah. Because what would say my mother, or I, I was 25 years old, but anyway, or my grandmother, and what would say, uh, and it was all a process of letting these things out of, of my mind. And uh, sometime, some months ago, I was reading in Twitter, Joyce Carol Oates was asking, <laughs> is it just me who never get any compliments of the family by my work or it happens to other writers? <laughs> so I was so happy. Uh, if she hears it somewhere, I was so happy because we are always trying to uh, appeal to them in, at a certain point. And what they do when they, when they feel attacked, and they always feel, and mostly by wrong aspects, when we are not talking about them, they think that we are several times, <laughs> at least with me. And they prefer not to speak about it. I mean, family, and it's more with women because men can still speak about everything. And women shouldn't, at, at least in Portugal, and with me, and with Joyce Carol Oates somewhere in America. No. It, it seems to, to She's happen. She's speaking and writing right now. I just wanted to add one thing about that, which is that I, feel, I, I really understand what you're saying about, I think that the time at which I really felt um, expectations uh, or maybe prohibitions yeah. that, that impacted me was um, when I was working on my second novel, Look at Me, which I, I could feel, I, I kept feeling like I wasn't, I, that this was really just too big for me, that it was just too much. It was sort of too broad, and I was trying to do too many things, and I, I was kind of overreaching. And I, I really think that those prohibitions had something to do with an idea about what male writers were supposed to do as opposed to females, and that really what I, what I felt was that I was being too ambitious and that I was gonna look like an idiot and be told that I was an idiot. Um, and so I think that I'm very, that was a terrible period. I, this sense of, of just being sort of ludicrous in my ambition and hopes. Um, and, and I think that you know, going ahead and just doing it anyway was a, was a really defining step for me. Um, and it's not that you know everyone loved that book by any means, but just sort of continuing with it despite those voices saying, you know, you should you should think smaller than this right. um, was really important. Yeah. yeah, but we keep hearing that all the time, don't we? I mean, you should think s smaller. small and just telling us what our limits are. I think some of that is very cultural. Sometimes it can be quite political as well. Mm -hmm. I keep hearing that a lot, in, especially in Turkey. You know, if one of my novels is about an Armenian-American family and the Turkish family, and, and afterwards there were articles published saying, oh, she must be a secret Armenian. <laughs> one of my novels tells the story of a Sephardic family, and then there were articles saying, oh, she must be a secret Jew. And then there were articles saying she must be secret Kurdish. There's always this conspiracy theories. I don't know why always associated with minorities. But the idea is, which is very scary to me, underlying, if it's not your identity, why would you care? Mm -hmm. You know, why would you even be interested in someone else's story? So I think it's very important for us to keep pushing and pushing and say, as you said, we can write about anything and everything, as long as we feel it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's such a great point. 
you all have written uh, fiction and nonfiction. Do you feel like there are certain topics that are best addressed in fiction versus nonfiction? I, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm imagining you're like me a little bit that this soul grinding cycle of news sometimes you start to feel like, why am I not only writing uh, about what's happening in my country or all over the world? Why am I not writing about climate change? Why am I not writing about X or Y? But there's a different dynamic that happens there between the reader uh, in fiction and in nonfiction. Do you, do you think about that at all? Are there certain things that you really feel you best can explore in fiction and other things that are more suited to nonfiction? I mean, I would say for me, there's actually been a lot of crossover, even though the nonfiction that I write tends to be, you know, heavily reported issues that that unfold over time. Um, and so uh, and since I don't, you know, write about myself or people that I know in fiction, obviously nonfiction is extremely different in that I'm hewing very closely to real life and not making anything up um, and actually believe very strongly in, in keeping that line firm. Um, but I guess what, what's driving all of it is just my own curiosity. You made that point, and I, I think it's so true. I, I, curiosity is the prime motivation for most of what I do. I guess I'm very lucky to be able to say that. Um, so I have found that, for example, you know, when I wrote uh, years ago about the secret out lives that uh, closeted gay teens were living online, I was just fascinated by that. This was before social media. Um, so, so teens who were closeted at home were finding each other on bulletin boards and living, you know, what they called their real lives online, where they had sexual partners and they had groups of friends. Um, and, and this was fascinating because at the same time, because it was online, there was a lot of deception inherent in these so-called real lives, namely, and, and, you know, most often adults pretending to be teenagers in order to engage in conversation, um, online with these teens. So that, I was already in my 30s by then, I had only, this was the year 2000, I'd only been online for maybe three years. And it led me to question, you know, what the the dichotomy between real and unreal really means in a virtual world. And that led pretty directly to my writing a novel called The Keep, which asked some of those questions. So I guess um, I guess that it, it, you know, it's it's only in the execution that they differ. The the, the curiosity is, is sort of the same, I guess, consciousness mine, hoping to learn about the world in in various ways. I think for, for me, storytelling, of course, is at the center, and it's how I connect with life. And that's where I feel more complete, because I can be plural, I can bring out a multiplicity of voices, m maybe a more nuanced way of thinking, because the canvas of the novel allows you to do that. And, and to me, that's freedom, that's liberating. But that said, I don't like it when fiction writers only read fiction or... or get the you know, sources, inspiration only from reading fiction. I think we need to be learners. We need to be students constantly. So to me, also maybe because I stayed in academia for many years, and my background is very interdisciplinary. I'm a political scientist by training, and that's one field where emotions are incredibly belittled. Nobody pays attention because it's not even measurable data. You know, who cares about emotions? And I think that's one of the big deficits of, of the way we teach things because the borders between disciplines are so 
thick and, and you're supposed to be in your isolated department, I find that very problematic. So all I'm trying to say is knowledge to me is a circle. Maybe something you say today is going to inspire me tomorrow or vice versa. Similarly, when we read about neuroscience, philosophy, economy, history, that constantly inspires us fiction writers, and that's in the novel where I, I, I unite all of them. Mm -hmm. But for me to be able to do that, my perspective needs to be, needs to be broad. It's, it's a bit of a struggle, because you have to explain this over and over. Um, but partly, maybe, because I was also raised by two women, my mother and my grandmother, and my grandmother was like an oral storyteller. And maybe from her I got this respect for the spoken word. I also respect not only written word, written culture, but also oral culture and the spoken word is important to me. I see really the novel as a cathedral that, that you can put anything, uh, as Elif was saying, in there. And also, uh, having been a journalist for a long time too, I, I understand perfectly what, what uh, Jenny said about uh, the swift of things. And um, for instance, in, in that novel, in this novel, uh, the Mozambique part is very inspired in a long reportage I did in the 90s in Mozambique at the end of the terrible uh, civil war they had after the colonial war. And I wrote a reportage on that, but there were things uh, I saw and, and, and I heard and I couldn't tell everything for lots of reasons. And, I, uh, and, and also, sometimes when we were journalists for a very, very long period, we are tired of too much reality, too. I mean, we wanted things to be like we, we, we thought it, they would be, uh, instead of they, what they are. And I, I, I mingle things a lot in, in novels, and, and also I, I, I don't like novels that don't uh, carry a vision of the world, although open to the reader. But I mean, I think novels, today there's, a th I think, an international uh, trend to read nonfiction uh, now, right? Which for me is odd because aren't we tired of the excess of reality? But, but to me, it's amazing. I, I, I tend to read a lot of essays, always did, and poetry, always. <coughs> Especially when I'm reading, uh, when, when, when I'm writing novels, I cannot read novels, uh, particular novels I like, and I don't read others, because uh, you, you cling to that voice and rhythm which is not yours. So I read essays and poetry a lot. Uh, but but I'm more and more into reading fiction because fiction amplifies the world, our world. It's a testimony, but with poetry, with uh, uh, all kinds of, it can have photography, cinema, uh, sociology, history, and the novels I like. I mean, Don Quixote de la Mancha, the one of the first great novels of the world, it is amazing because it has uh, lots of stories and also essays yeah. about his time and also uh, funny stories and tragic stories and everything intermingled with these main characters to characters do the, the novel. And for me, that's the... So the novel is always the, the bigger thing. Yeah, I'm just listening to you talk, I'm thinking that... Um, 
nonfiction gives us a lot of information, but it's always we're reading about someone else. Uh, even if we're reporting it, then we're reading, um, the, the, the reader is reading about my experience. When fiction is done really well, you inhabit the character, you become the terrorist, you become the starving child. Uh, there is no scrim there. And so in some ways, I think that really revolution will come from novels more than nonfiction. You know, it, it's so true. I mean, we're, we're such a visual culture and that just becomes more and more the case. Um, but I, I, you know, as far as I can see, there's really no other form in existence that actually takes us inside the consciousness of another human being. Anything image-based is not doing that by definition. It's trying to suggest inner life and it, it can do that quite wonderfully. It's not the same thing. And the other th point I would make is that in terms of information, I think fiction is really undervalued as a, as a cultural artifact. And I say that as someone who had to learn a lot about the first half of the 20th century. And what I found ultimately was that nothing actually contained more information in condensed form than fiction. It actually didn't matter if it was good or bad. It, but there were so many cultural assumptions, um, habits of speech, all the information that, that a novel delivers without knowing it was so invaluable to me just as a researcher. So I, um, it gave me new respect, actually, for, for fiction mm -hmm. as, a, as just a, a, a kind of baked-in form of information. Something, too, about that willingness to yield, to, to, to take that in and... Um, and, and to be moved by that, to suspend your disbelief, to just take that little extra rotation in your consciousness and open up, I think, is, is, is pretty extraordinary. Um, is it possible today to be an apolitical writer? I would say that years ago, for Americans, I think it's possible, perhaps, that there were apolitical writers, I don't know. But I, but I could be wrong. I'm sure there are people out I thought it this morning. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think that can be the case anymore. Yeah, I don't think so either. In Western, in, in, in uh, the Western world. To, to me, I mean, it's, I think for such a long time, I felt this way. If you happen to be a writer and if you happen to come from a wounded democracy or for a, from a more wobbly country, I think like Turkey, like Nigeria, like Egypt, Pakistan, and now the list is of course getting longer and longer. You really don't have the luxury of being non-political. I, I don't think you can say, I'm only going to write my, my stories and not really talk about what's happening outside my window. Also, as feminists, I think we can't say that because one of the many wonderful things we have learned from feminist movements of past generations was that the personal was political. So politics is not only about political parties or the parliament, it's much broader than that. Wherever there's power, there is politics. So if we define politics in that broad sense, again, you can't be non-political. But my observation is particularly after the year 2016, I think more and more Western authors have started to feel that kind of urgency. And now I see in the UK as well, where I live, more British authors giving political interviews, uh, political tweets like never before, and writing more political novels. So that shift is quite interesting. And I honestly think we none of us can, not only writers, but none of us 
can afford to be non-political in this age. And I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm not even talking about party politics, but I'm talking about being engaged. You yes. know, just, just asking questions, being alert and awake and conscious and being active in the civic space and also in the digital space, keeping an eye because there's a lot of misinformation, hate speech, slander that we should be very much aware of. And also, empathy is the chief tool of the fiction writer and the chief result of reading fiction. And I feel like we live in a time where actually empathy is under siege. And, and insisting on the, the importance of empathy and the necessity of it becomes a political act unto itself. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think, can I answer too? Well, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I think all good writing is political and ever was. I mean, there's no, there's nothing, not even a poem isn't political because of empathy, because of human, uh, what's happened in a woman, uh, human head, which is always political. But I was thinking um, now it's become fashionable for bad reasons, mostly, uh, and but it's good, That's, it's like women, uh, in the wars, women got the right to work. And then after the wars, they tried to, uh, to withdraw the, this right and women wouldn't let. So bad things always have this counterpart or, or frequently have. Uh, but I was thinking, I, I'm doing my PhD on Milan Kundera, a writer I, I love, a, a Czech writer, and the interview after interview, he was complaining to be called a political uh, writer uh, because he had to flee from uh, Czechoslovakia at the time and had lots of political problems. And this, he saw that as, as we women uh, are tired of being called uh, uh, female writing, he was tired of being a political writer because it diminished the it's, it's thought he diminished, uh, diminished him as a writer. Right. And I think he was right uh, because, uh, I mean, when we, s I mean, the pol what, he mea what he meant was I'm talking about my country, the reality I know, but it's, I wanted it to be a parable of the, what happens in the world right. where there's no freedom. Right. So it's not just a, a partisan thing, not, it is not at all a partisan thing. And I think every good writer uh, is a political in the bigger picture and not in the part when it's partisan. And we had writers in Soviet Union, for instance, for long. It's not great writing and it's not telling anything about humanity or right. mankind. But I think, it, like you say, it's not great writing. And that's what really matters. It's not. It's not. You know, it's not human. But way. to argue the other side a tiny bit, you know, if fiction is not didactic, which is something that's very important to me, there is a kind of mystery about it ultimately that I think leaves it open to interpretation, and we have to accept that as fiction writers and actually welcome it. I mean, the culture tells stories through us if we're doing our job right, and. We can't control the ways those are read. And just as one example with A Visit from the Goon Squad, I know that there are, are people who have read that book very happily as a parable about what happens when you engage in bad behavior. You know, the sort of punishments that life uh, heaps on those who, you know, take drugs or whatever as younger people. 
that's a, an abhorrent ab uh, interpretation to me, but it's valid. I can't, I can't say that that's not there because if someone read it and found it, then it was there for them. Right. But right. Uh, absolutely, and we don't try to control the reader's right take from the story at all. Um, but I think that's why we need this distinction between asking questions and trying to dictate the answers. And I don't think novels should be doing that at all. To me, it was one of the biggest lessons when I was much younger, when my first novel was published in Turkey. I received a very interesting letter from a reader, and she was analyzing the book. It was one of the best book reviews I've ever read. <laughs> she was a university student, you know, six pages long letter, and she loved the book. She was just finding connections that I wasn't even aware of. The reason why I'm mentioning is at last page, she says, you know, I come from a conservative family, she says. I wear a headscarf, and she was a student at university. She says, I have a friend who comes from an exactly same background. We are very close. We share everything in life. We know each other's secrets. I loved your book so much, I gave it to her immediately. And three days later, my friend came, and she said this was blasphemy. She could only read it up to page 40. And this girl was shocked, you know, saying, who is right? Did I, am I right? Did I get your yeah. book right? Did she get it right? And I think there's no right and wrong. You know, they both yeah. read it. That's why it's so unique, our readings, because we bring our own voice as readers into the story. Yeah. Fantastic. I think that's a good uh, place for us to start taking some uh, audience questions, if you have them. And maybe they'll turn up the lights a little bit. Right there, at the, on the right. So, over here in the corner. I have. All right, there's someone uh, up here. They're going to bring you the. Uh, or the person behind you. No, I'm going to ask because I have to leave. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. By I'm all only means. in New York for 36 hours. Um, it seems as if you're writing from a deficit. That women write from a deficit narrative. I want great stories of women. I know my daughter wants great stories of women. Regardless of political or non-political, we need great stories told by women about women. And I just think there's a dearth of that. And I get the Nancy Drew thing. I'm no, no, Canadian. That's, yeah, that's so curious. that's it. That's just my, okay. I, like, that's what we need. I doing think. our best. I know. Uh, you know what? I know. No, 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 earlier, earlier in, the, in the green room, in the green room, we were discussing this. Why it was that so many of the books, our early influences, the books that we loved, were books by men, and the reality is there simply were not as many women writers being published. I feel like yeah. there's an entire swath lost generations of yeah. female writers who did not get the respect they deserved. They were not taught. Their books were not promoted. They were not held up as the equivalent of their, of their male counterparts. Can I say something? I do what I can, not only writing, but I launched the publishing house, a small publishing house at home, just to publish women that didn't get credit when they should. Portuguese women, American women, feminists. I'm going to publish Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the, the American feminist who wrote wonderful books, and they are no, they are not here at the shelves, nor even, in, and they were never published in Portugal. Several women from all countries that were never publi uh, published abroad or, or known, or even published, if I find 
if I can find them. Well, we were so, uh, and we are doing our best, as, as Jenny no, was the saying. Onus isn't on you three, I okay. To look to are you look to your schools? Are your children being given these books to read? Yeah. Um, you look at the books that you buy. Are you reward? Are are female writers making enough money? Yeah. Uh, you you look at the uh, the the just conversationally. Who are the writers that you talk about? I mean, this is there are more than enough strong, powerful female narratives out there. The issue is that. Um, we haven't been taught that they are equal to men. They haven't been promoted that way. Um, and they're not sold that way. And that's, and that's unacceptable. Okay, over here. We, we, need, to we need questions. This person here. Um, uh, this question is for Elif. Um, I'm reading your book. Uh, she hasn't gotten to Oxford yet. So it's that the beginning. Um, but I noticed from the very beginning, there's this undercurrent of the fact of this feeling that you've mentioned that things are not right in Turkey, and it's very, very, very um, obvious. Uh, it almost makes me not want to go to Istanbul, which almost all the Americans who have been there will just love it. But there's something about it that feels very, very um, sad. And I'm just wondering if you've had any political repercussions, like from the government or at times, not only like friends have said, why are you writing all these terrible things about Turkey, but if you've also had some repercussions on a higher level. Thank you so much. Maybe I can share two things. Um, did, did I have political repercussions? You always have political repercussions, you know, always. Everything we say in an interview, in a talk, what we write, I think every Turkish writer, journalist, particularly for journalists, I have a lot of respect. Journalism has become the most dangerous profession in Turkey and countries like Turkey. But every, everyone, and anyone who deals with words knows that because of something you say or write, you can get into trouble so easily. And you can be demonized so easily, targeted so easily, prosecuted, exiled, arrested. As a result, there's wide self-censorship, I think, among Turkish literati. And we need to talk about self-censorship. But that's a very difficult thing to talk about, because what do you do when censorship comes from within, not necessarily always from outside? To me, that is far more dangerous. How we start to tone down you know, our own voices, and we need to be very alert. I also say this to myself. Uh, I experienced so many things, I mean, over the years. One small example was after The Bastard of Istanbul was written, published. I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. Um, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. <laughs> there were like mobs on the streets putting my pictures on fire, spitting at my pictures, photos next to EU flags. And after I was acquitted, I lived with a bodyguard for a year and a half for writing a novel. I mean, I'm not saying this, you know, that me, people go through much worse, but it's a country where it's difficult to, to write about words. But I think so many of us are experiencing this, like countries are going backwards. We now know that history doesn't always necessarily go forward. And country after country, we have seen this slide backwards into nationalism, tribalism, uh, religious fundamentalism, and I honestly think it should concern us women 
more because when this happens, women are the first ones to lose their rights and also minorities, yeah. you know, sexual minorities. So. Hi, sorry. Hi, my name is Rajana. Thank you so much for such great comments. My question is adjacent to the previous comments. Um, I work in human rights, and we talk a lot about alliances and allyship and what being a good ally looks like. And I'm curious about your thoughts, what it means to be a good ally for you in terms of the LGBTI community. This conversation so far has been phrased as in like men and women, but I think there's that aspect as well and being a good ally to women of color. And to the other question, what does it mean for you, for men, to be a good ally, both in terms of the characters that show up in the book, but also as fellow writers to you all? Thank you. Well, uh, what's mean to be a good ally? I think it's the same for men and women, only my, in my experience. We are far from that, uh, and unfortunately, for, from women too, um, because because society pushes women. Uh, women don't have the same uh, power space men do up to today, in all fields. So when there's two women, at least in my experience, in uh, here we are three from different countries, but. Uh, for once, for instance, when there is a review, we are compared with other women, not with the, the male, our male colleagues. At least is my experience mainly, and um, and we are lots of times uh, described or or put into rivalry with each other, which is silly and and uh, absurd, but it still functions a lot, unfortunately. So I think what we must do, and, and another thing, when men say, and I had been in, in, in debates where men say, well, I would be a feminist if I was a, a, a woman, but I cannot have your place of, of speech. Now it's this idea of the place of speech, and you cannot have the place of speech of another. Uh, at, at least in Portugal, in Brazil, for instance, there's a, the, the, the one, one as this, so I cannot be in his place, you know? And I ask, well, so you cannot be anti-racist because you are not black, which is silly. So I don't, I don't uh, engage in conversations with men who say, I cannot be a feminist because I'm a man. So if you cannot be a feminist, you're not an interesting person. You're like... <laughs> You are a person uh, that that has nothing to say to me, and I think we we should be must much more uh, aggressive. Is not the word, but I, I, my words in English are not my words in Portuguese, but more firm in these issues. Yeah, yeah. I, I and it's funny thinking may, uh, maybe it is uh, America, but some of the very best feminists I know are men. Yeah. Um, but in terms of being an ally. Uh, have male allies, male allies have to support women. Yeah. You step back. They have to step back and let women step forward. A lot of being a good male ally is um, pushing back against other men. We yeah. know that the number one deterrent to 
women being uh, raped or sexually assaulted is other men, right? A man saying, you know what, let's, well, don't do that, let's go get a beer. Yeah. <laughs> that is the number one, it's not the length of your skirt, it's nothing. This, for men to speak to men uh, about, about needing to treat women with respect and, and equality, that's, that's what a good ally does. And that, to me, seems like a very human, yeah. uh, very just a human yeah. uh, thing to do. But uh, there's a lot of talk about allyship and uh, what's a good ally and a bad ally. And I can, I can talk more about it, but it <laughs> bore all of you, the rest of you, I'm sure. Just, just to add up on that, I think what, what worries me is these gaps that I see, or even within the women's movement. And I think we need to be conscious of those and try to bridge them. And I believe we're at a crossroads. It worries me when I look at all these populist movements, one of their central threads is, is clear anti-feminist energy. You know, it's almost like a backlash. For, I mean, yeah. There are so many examples, but the, the most recent one is the Vox in Spain. Mm -hmm. If you have seen their party manifesto, it's so clear. I mean, one of the things they did was touring the country just before International Women's Day with a bus, a picture of Hitler, underneath hashtag feminazi, feminazi, it says. That the idea is that feminists have gone too far and that they're destroying the family. We need to protect the family. So we have come at a very dangerous backlash when uh, we need to be very alert. And I think it's very important what you mentioned, those, those allies, because there are gaps even within women's movement that worry me, depending on color, class. Sometimes, especially where I come from, across the Middle East, politics is so divisive. Women are so badly divided, and we don't even see how much we have in common because what matters is how you dress up, whether you're wearing a headscarf or not. Those divisions are very, very deep. And I think when women are so badly divided, the only thing that benefits from that is patriarchy itself. That worries me. And secondly, unfortunately, there's a big gap between women's movement uh, and LGBT rights. Because again, homophobia runs across the ideological spectrum. So there's some tough conversations we need to start having as well, in my opinion. Thank you. Um, a paper came out in Nature this week which showed that there was a very clear difference in voice between male grant writers in science and female grant writers. And if you took the name off and you couldn't distinguish the gender and that there was a bias in that science projects written by men were more attractive to people processing those grant applications. So it seems to me that there's a very distinct male versus female voice in science proposals, vision, imaginary. Do you think there's the same in a female voice in terms of fiction writing? I do not. Um, I mean, men have been writing women for a long time. Um, and, you know, we've, we've accepted those books and they're often quite wonderful. Um, and I, it does not seem to me that there is any difference necessarily. I mean, people are very different from each other and writers, you know, good fiction often has a very strong voice of one sort or another. 
Um, one thing I've tried very hard to do, because I like my books to be different from each other, again, just out of curiosity, one of the biggest struggles is just, just finding the voice that's appropriate to a particular book. I would say that's kind of, in a way, that's the heart of, of the struggle to write decent fiction. Um, and so I guess that's where I see the differences. You know, particular books have particular voices, but to me, there is no difference between male and female necessarily. As I just say that as a reader. It's not even a, a political view. Um, I just, I, 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 don't, I don't think it, it's true. No, I, I, I fully agree. Perhaps the only thing that, were the differences in the perception of the work, right? How the work is being perceived. Because as you said, each and every writer's voice is so different. Let alone from one book to another, I find you know differences in one single author's oeuvre. So going going uh, when I look at their backlist, but the perception can be very different. Even the the book jackets, which colors you put on the on the book jackets, in one of my novels in in, in Turkey, the book jacket was quite pink, and I had to deal with my own biases because I thought I realized I had the same bias. Like serious literary fiction cannot be associated with the color pink, so I wanted to <laughs> challenge myself. And so the book was published, but then we realized after a while male readers were covering the book with newspapers and <laughs> hiding it, so we had to publish a smoky gray version <laughs> just to soothe their worries. And then there was this debate, but, but this is happening, you know, even how the book jacket is designed oh, that's a huge hugely yeah. affects people's uh, perception of how serious the work is inside. And look inside at the, the size of the type of the author's name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, having to really fight to get your yeah. name, you know, not in cursive. Substantial size. Do we have a final question? Are we done? Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. 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 Th